Hi guys, this is David Negrin, host of the Script Podcast and executive director of the NYC Screenwriters Collective. I'm excited to announce that we've created a Patreon campaign for the script. Patreon is like a Kickstarter, but it allows you to give ongoing pledges every month and receive ongoing rewards. Of course, the Script Podcast will continue to be free, but we're just asking for a little help. So please, check out all our rewards, join our inner circle. Become a patron of The Script Podcast at patreon.com slash the script. Just because there's not a war doesn't mean there's peace. Everything they've built will fall! I've never felt power like this before. Hello. This is The Script, the podcast for screenwriters, by screenwriters, all story all the time. The deepest story analysis anywhere on the internet tonight, as you saw from our trailer, X-Men Apocalypse. I'm Alec Pollock. And I'm Jeremy Engel Johnson. We were supposed to be joined by a third X-Men tonight, but David Negrin, unfortunately, has been captured and is involved in an apocalypse mind meld at this moment, so he will not be able to join us. I think they also call that school, uh, film school finals, but, yes. you know, <laughs> one and the same. So, uh, you know, Alec, uh, I guess before we, we get into our, our conversation, I want to just kind of set this up a little bit, some of the, some of the basic details of this. Um, this uh, latest installment of X-Men is brought to you by director Brian Singer. You have uh, probably, if you've been following the franchise, you know Brian Singer, right? He was kind of the original director for the first couple X-Men movies and was uh, brought in uh, for the most recent one before this, X-Men Days of Future Past. Uh, going back a little further, you may recognize him from The Usual Suspects, uh, At Pupil, Superman Returns, Valkyrie, that sort of thing. Um, the screenwriters, because we're all about the screenwriting here, uh, are Simon Kinberg. Uh, he did Mr. and Mrs. Smith, Jumper, Sherlock Holmes. Uh, he did X-Men The Last Stand and the most, you know, or the, the prior movie, X-Men Days of Future Past. Um, as far as an opening weekend, we just finished Memorial Day weekend, and uh, this did pretty well. It grossed about $80 million in the first four days. I think it was projected to come in at 82. So, you know, they're, they're right on track. They did a lot better than the, the Alice in Wonderland movie. Um, and, uh, yeah, just uh, forewarning, there will be spoilers. So if you haven't seen the movie and you think that something surprising is going to happen in this movie, I guess stick wax in your ears and go do something else. So... Um, should we kind of talk a little bit about you know our, our perspectives coming into this? Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, uh, I've been very excited for this movie to come out. I don't know if you, if you have. Uh, I uh, was a longtime comic book fan, uh, generally a comic book geek. I like the comic book movies. I like the world of comic book movies. It's kind of like my childhood dreams coming true of all of these uh, stories coming to life on the big screen. As a big X-Men fan when I was a kid in the 80s and reading all of the uh, Chris Claremont stories and John Byrne and Paul Smith as the artist really bringing this all to life. So I was just very psyched to see some of those specific storylines coming out uh, and uh, have had some great conversations with uh, the screenwriters about this kind of new age of superhero movies and where they've gone and where they're going. Great. And I'm kind of on the other end of the spectrum. I didn't really grow up with comic books. You know, when I heard the movie was called Apocalypse, I'm thinking like the Book of Revelations as opposed to something <laughs> produced by Marvel. But, you know, that's all good. Um, I you will think it's finally over. <laughs> well, we'll see. It's never over. Um, I was looking for the seven seals in here and I didn't find them. But um, that said, uh, maybe bringing a little bit of skepticism, hopefully help healthy skepticism to the mix here as we talk about this movie. Sure. That sounds great. That sounds great. Have you seen any of the other uh, superhero movies thus far this season? Uh, 
uh, I, 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 I'm a little behind, but I've uh, people who follow our podcast have probably heard me hating on superhero movies okay. previously. All right, great. And basically, my general premise about superhero movies is they're taking all the air out of the room. But that's not to say they're not worth seeing, and not to say they're not worth talking about. Yeah, they could be well done, and by the same token. They could not. Yeah. And I think we've seen a little bit of both. And this one probably falls somewhere in the middle yeah, as far as that yeah, spectrum goes. Yeah, yeah. well, let, let's, let's, let's start to get into it. Um, usually uh, on these podcasts and in our screenwriting workshops, we do a three up and three down to determine uh, what our feelings are about how the stories were conducted. Uh, so you want to get into that? Yeah. You want to go ahead with your three up? Sure. I will uh, I will start uh, my three up. Uh, in general, I just wanted to say that I, I, I had fun at the movie. Um, I, again, was looking forward to it. I think my expectations have been tempered by the rocky road that has been the past uh, five movies before this. Um, I remember 16 years ago just being so excited for the first two films, the first two of Brian Singer's X-Men and X-Men 2. You'd been waiting your whole life up to that point for this I to had, come out, right? I had. When yeah. I was a kid, we were, we were you know, dream casting it, and we were dream casting, of course, Patrick Stewart at the time, so that, that came, came to pass. He was uh, with us long enough to to be a part of that and still is um, and uh, so I'm always excited I'm excited to see what they do with it I'm also uh, usually really interested to see how uh, legends and uh, the mythologies of our time are reinterpreted uh, much like uh, Greek myths in the past and again this has been talked about ad infinitum online and whatnot but this idea that comic books really are our modern myths the ideas of Superman and Batman and all of the Marvel characters Captain America Spider-Man they are these these modern heroes um, and heroines and villains and antagonists that are, are kind of our mythologies. And I love the idea of stories being retold and tweaked over time to see uh, what comes out of it, what, what lasts. Uh, people are going to remix these stories uh, infinitely, and sometimes it sticks and sometimes it doesn't. So you right. have things uh, like the X-Men, the notion of the X-Men, and Wolverine being this really popular character and uh, 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 entering into the popular consciousness. And that's exciting, that's interesting to see these characters, like I said, that I grew up with as this geeky comic book reading kid, now being in the popular mainstream as characters that people know and these legendary characters that people know, for better or for worse, in the form of the movies. Um, and so uh, a lot of my, my, my things that I liked uh, were referencing uh, parts of that. But the first one actually was, I really liked the way they set up the symmetrical structure of the whole thing with the, uh, the opening scene uh, in ancient Egypt setting up apocalypses, uh, last life before the one that we're going to see here um, and his horsemen and his transference of consciousness they kind of set things up and they set up the rules of the world in this particular film pretty well I thought in terms of setting that up and the, and the rules are what like what, what do you in rough form what do you think the rules are that are established I think it was the, the rules of the antagonist the rules of apocalypse himself I think right. that was the important thing to set up I think it assumed that you understood the world of the X-Men at large mm -hmm. coming into it I think coming into this completely uh, clean and not having seen any of the ones in the past, you were probably a little lost along the way, and, and it, it, it just went with it. And I kind of felt that was okay. You're, you're coming into the third part of a second uh, set of trilogies. Yeah, 16 so. years later, I think we can assume that you've seen one of the other movies. Exactly, exactly. Which is one of the things I love about superhero movies these days, is they don't have to start at the beginning, necessarily. You can kind of get into it and tell the story that you want to tell. And this one dove right into uh, Apocalypse's story and as a part of that I love that Moira McTaggart 
opening the, the rug and letting the sunlight in was the, uh, the uh, uh, inciting incident. And we can talk more about structure, I know, later. Mm -hmm. But I liked how that worked structurally and how that then led to our finale, which had our heroes now filling the roles of the people who are trying to uh, uh, thwart Apocalypse's plans uh, later on and in, in the future. Right. How that turned out and how that worked for the people that we have come to follow and know and love, we can discuss. But I like the general idea of the symmetry. So that was one uh, thumbs up. Uh, second thumbs up, again, as a longtime X-Men fan, I love that Scott and Gene were a big part of it. And again, from someone who is not coming from it, that might mean nothing at all because Scott and Gene just so have not been such a big part of the story up until now. Yeah. I mean, I got I to gotta say, and I, I don't want to interrupt your, th your well, three ups, but like, I remember the first installment, the first three movies, I was like, man, this guy, this guy Scott, this guy Cyclops, he just kind of sucks. <laughs> and, and I was thinking up you know, for the first part of it, I was like, well, you know, this version of him, he's, he's kind of a little better. But then he got his glasses, and I was like, oh, wait, he still sucks. <laughs> so, but, you know, personal preference aside. You know. I understand. I, look, I'm just happy that they are a little more front and center than they had been because, again, growing up and knowing the core of the X-Men, Scott and Jean are the core of the X-Men. They are the core of it, and they never have been in the films in the same way. Uh, Famke Johnson's Jean Grey was a lot more central to it. But this idea that Scott is the leader of the X-Men, and you would never know that from seeing all these films. Right. And seeing his actual leadership role you know, evolving and coming to pass and seeing the genesis of that seems to be pretty cool. And I hope that they'll continue with that as the movies, no doubt, will continue into the future. Uh, and my Forever last one. Forever and ever and ever and ever. Yes, yeah. yes. And I'm sure you've got comments on that. <laughs> Um, my last one is uh, uh, just X-Men Across the World was my, my last uh, thumbs up, uh, was this idea that part of the notion of the, uh, again, this is getting into a little comic book geekery, but there were kind of two major phases of the X-Men. The first group of X-Men were just these, these five young teenagers, and then when they kind of had disbanded or, or needed help, uh, Xavier recruits a new band of X-Men, and they are from all over the world. And that's where you get Storm, and that's where you get Colossus from Russia, Storm from Africa, Nightcrawler from Germany, Wolverine from Canada, you had Banshee from Ireland. You had, Look at you, you know everybody's citizenship. I'm this telling you, but that's the thing. It was part of the core of the X-Men story and the X-Men legend that they were this international group that came together at that one time. And that was exciting, and that was part of what made them an interesting group to, to put together, an interesting specific group of characters that you put together and interacted with each other with their own personalities and nationalities. And you had the, the, the start of that. Maybe not everything, but there was calls to it. So it feels like they're, with Scott and Gene and with this, this uh, international flair, it feels like they're trying to make some amends for things that they had left out of the core of the X-Men storytelling in the past. So those, and, are my, those are my ups. And I, I thought Storm in particular, I mean, that yes. was kind of a neat thing where, you know, she's, she's basically uh, she's somebody who has powers, but she's living on the street. She's using her powers to swindle people. But she's got the poster of Mystique up on the wall. And that's her hero. Yeah. And that's going to come back later on and become an important part in the third act. But for now, I mean, this idea that, you know, here's this kind of, uh, you know, very kind of by her bootstraps character uh, from a totally different place that, that becomes part of the mix. I, I, I thought this was more, uh, more global than the other X-Men yeah. have been. Yeah. So. yeah. And that, again, what, what uh, resonated for me is that's true to the character of the comic book character of Storm, of Aurora. She's from... Cairo. She was a, a pickpocket and a thief in Cairo before she came to, to join the X-Men family. And so I, I love seeing that part of it. And again, I think it was it was made to appeal to folks like me who, who knew where that was coming from. And they, they added it in, in a really uh, uh, 
uh, well-structured way that made sense for the film. And it appeals to people like me. I'm thinking Oliver Twist, you yeah. know, so, <laughs> yeah. you know, pulling from a different direction, but, you know. Um, so as far as my three-ups, uh, like, I, I like the high concept. This kind of felt like X-Men do the mummy. <laughs> and and I, I love the mummy, right? So you know I'm I'm fine with that, and 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 I like the idea that this this antagonist is from a long time ago. Uh, I also thought the way that Apocalypse was set up, like I really liked his superpowers. Um, I like that he has the ability to make other people stronger, and he has the ability to kind of cannibalize powers. And so it's it's kind of moving in two different directions. But it seems like at the core of these movies, and I I have seen all of them. I will admit that I have confused them in my mind, but. <laughs> I, I I've That's seen what enough I'm here for. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I've seen enough to, to feel confident in saying that the, the powers are kind of the key thing, right? And so somebody who can kind of amplify or take your power, that's a perfect antagonist, right? And, and you know, in the preview, they say he's, he, he's a god, and he really is because he has this ability to be kind of the uber mutant. So I thought as far as antagonists went, uh, he, was, he was really strong, and I liked him a lot. Um, this is a small thing, but one of the payoffs that I really liked in this movie, I'm just sitting there watching this the whole time, and I'm like, James McAvoy has way, way too much hair. And I'm thinking forward to Patrick Stewart as, as you know, as the, the future Charles Xavier. And, and so when we actually get to see how he went bald, thank you. That was my favorite part of the entire movie. I was just laughing. I was like, well, of course that's how he went bald. You know, it's, you know it's, it was an accident. And so, you know, this guy, uh, you know, I, I like that a lot. Um, I also thought, you know, the, the situation in the 80s, because we had to make this a little bit of a throwback, um, they did a really good job with that, and there were there were a lot of little Easter eggs that you could find over the course of it. Um, you know, I, I liked you know Quicksilver is like saving everybody in the uh, in the, the school for the gifted. You know, using his powers to do that, and it's all done to the tune of the Eurythmics. You know, Street Dreams are made of this, and there's even a moment where a tab is floating by, and he grabs the tab and takes a moment to drink. And you know, you would, you could call it product placement <laughs> if they'd made tab in the last 30 years, but they haven't. Um, there was also a cameo for the SR-71 Blackbird, and if you grew up in the 80s, that is the coolest plane ever, and I will date myself and admit that is the coolest plane ever. Uh, there also, I thought, you know, just Nightcrawler, he's in the Thriller jacket. Like, where did they find that? Did they, did they go and, and raid the, you know, the costume supply? Like, that, that was awesome. Uh, and then I, my other, like, 80s kind of Easter egg slash joke that worked really well was uh, as they're leaving Return of the Jedi, and uh, Jean Grey, you know, she's got to say it. She's like, the third movie is always the worst. She's kind of panning herself. Uh, and I love that they're kind of making fun of their own movie. This is the third movie the second time around. So uh, that, that all worked really well for me. I, I thought the, the sense of time and place was really strong in this movie. Absolutely. I, I definitely think so. And I love that they're having fun with the different decades and trying to play out this uh, notion of uh, the X-Men moving over time and evolving over time and playing with it. It's a nice little gimmick uh, that the movies have themselves. Uh, my, my wife, who is a, uh, um, a uh, fashion designer, uh, had a lot to say about the fashions in the 70s and the 60s and whether they were appropriate or not for their particular eras. So it was nice to see some of the, the really, like, definitely 80s... And it's uh, nice that she found kind of a personal way to... Absolutely. Something to take out of the movie after you subjected her to this. <laughs> absolutely, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, and uh, I think that, that the 80s stuff really harkens back to a time when comic books were much more brightly colored, not as dark and dreary as a lot of the things are today. I mean, looking at, at the DC Comics world, uh, Batman vs. Superman being uh, part of a lot of that controversy, being that, that very dark and, and grim aspect of these comic book characters that didn't start out that way. Right. Not in the 30s and definitely not in the 80s when things were bright spandex and 
rah-rah out there. A lot of people may have grown up with the X-Men uh, cartoon series on TV when they wore these brightly colored costumes and had a much more heroic aspect than a lot of things on TV. And I think that, uh, than a lot of films today, and I think they're trying to get back to that and trying to recapture a little bit of that. And the 80s was a nice place to do that. Yeah, and it's an interesting mix of this kind of throwback sentimentality, but also use of anachronism. I mean, the, the thriller jacket, I think, being, I mean, it's an iconic thing. And we know that, I mean, I think people knew that at that point, but it's, it's different now. I mean, now it's, it's borderline cliche, which is funny when we see Nightcrawler wearing the thing. Uh, you know, you could kind of see him in the thriller video. He would have actually fit in just right. Absolutely. 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 So you have three downs for us? I do. I do. I have uh, lots of downs and lots Maybe of things to talk about. But yeah, but these are, these are my three that uh, you know, immediately came to mind when I started thinking about three downs. Um, one, character arcs. Uh, I, I kind of just felt like our characters were going through and saving the world again from another bad guy and Magneto. And there was just no necessary arc. I mean, Magneto, if anybody, seemed to be the one who had some kind of an arc, but... Was he an antagonist? Wasn't he? It was the same story that was going again and again. So that's actually my one and two. Character arcs, where were they? Yeah, I almost, I was trying to think what the metaphor would be because it, it wasn't like they arced. It was like character airdrops. Like, you know, you, you get a check-in with them at the beginning and then you get the very end and there's, there's some learning that's taking place. You haven't learned anything. He's lost his hair. Yeah, he's lost his hair. hair but I mean, I thought that my favorite example of that was, was um, Moira and, and Charles Xavier seeing each other mm -hmm. and just for you know, the setup here, he has uh, erased all of her memories of him and he still continues to be totally in love with her, right? And so he's all gaga, sweaty palms, like, you know, having this, this meeting with her and she's like, how do you know this stuff about me? Why are you so weird? Like, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> uh, and we kind of set this up and then we see zero courtship, zero romance. And at the very end, he's like, I'm going to give you your memories back. Oh yeah, we're in love. Just you know, so that's why I say character airdrops. It just felt like you know, here's a package for you. Yeah, you know, enjoy it. Yeah, I mean, and you wonder like, again, are they trying to make amends? Is Brian Singer trying to make amends for things that had happened in the past in films in general? I mean, that kiss. I mean, he, he erases her memory with a kiss at the end of X Men: First Class, and that, I mean that harkens back to one of the first superhero movies of Superman, the, the original Superman the movie, right. where he erases her memory with a kiss, which doesn't make any sense for Superman to be doing that, but it does make sense for Xavier to do that in uh, the idea of his powers, but not necessarily in, in terms of the story. It kind of sounds like something an eye banker wishes he could do with his Tinder date, but you know <laughs> I don't know how it fits into the whole you know superhero world. Absolutely, absolutely. So again, in that sense, I was happy that he undid that nonsense and she's a part of their their world again um, as Moira usually is um, and my, my third one really is just the idea that there's just the, there is so much going on there are so many characters and yes the X-Men is a world of rich with mutants and characters but that's over the history of the X-Men the past 50 years or so that these characters have been introduced uh, the stories, like I said, that have always worked best for the X-Men have been because you've got a core group of, of people who are relating to each other, mutants who are relating to each other, X-Men who are relating to each other, and fighting adversity together. And uh, everything just felt so diluted uh, mm -hmm. to me. And I, again, I was happy to see them on the screen, sure. I mean, Olivia Munn's character as, as Psylocke, yeah, it was cool and everything, but she didn't even have any speaking parts. She didn't play any kind of a role. It could have been any mutant over the past 50 years that played that role, and it was really disappointing in that sense. Too um, many characters, you think? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and even the ones that were there, I just were, were crowded out by all the other ones. Look, we've got Storm, who we've already talked about, 
I loved her. I thought she was really, really good. I thought the characterization was great. I was not a fan at all of Halle Berry's Storm. And my, my daughter, Indy, who's out there, uh, I think, watching right now, uh, Storm is one of her favorite characters. And I, I want these strong female characters for my daughter to be able to look up to and, and uh, appreciate as these great heroes. And, and Storm is a, an awesome example of that. But she just didn't feel like she had enough to do because she was just crowded out by too many other characters. Yeah. Well, I think I think a few of my downs are going to um, kind of play in the same sure. same area that, that you're at. Um, I, I thought there were too many of, I mean, not only were there too many characters, but there's the, too many of these kind of dyads, right? So I already mentioned Moira and, and Charles, mm-hmm. so that's a good one. Um, but, you know, we, we, we see it over and over again where these people have these supposed dynamics. I mean, so like uh, Magneto and Quicksilver. You know, and it, he's a little coy. It's like, am I going to tell my dad? Am I going to not? But it's like that is never paid off in any way. It's he gets as far as like walking up to, okay, my dad is in the process of destroying the world, but I'm not going to tell him anything. You know, I'm not going to say, hey, maybe you shouldn't do that. Remember how good that was back then? You know, whatever. Like he's just like, I'm, I'm, I'm good. You know, I'm gonna, I'm just kind of sit here in the corner. Uh, so there were a lot of those where it just didn't feel like. The, the, the connections they were going for, and it, be, it was because of those kind of character arc slash airdrops that were just like, we've got a starting point and an ending point, and you don't get to see anything in between. So, so the, it didn't feel like the dyads got to advance. Yeah. I mean, you talk about Jean Grey and, and Cyclops being you know, kind of the core of the X-Men, and there was a lot going on in, I'd say the beginning of the second act that was really getting them in the mix and you're starting to build up to it, and then what happens with it? Not much. And, and frankly, I, I mean, I was left, like, she was never Jean Grey to me. She was Sansa Jean Grey. I mean, she, she was, like, I, I could never get out of my head. You know, she's, and she's warging, too, which was kind of cool. But, you know, not to get all, you know, off topic in Game of Thrones well, about it. it is relevant, though, because I was just going to ask, I mean, talking about Game of Thrones, if this were a television series instead, if X-Men Apocalypse was a, a season of the X-Men television show on HBO, would that, would those relationships, do you think, had the opportunity to blossom in a way that they deserve. I, I think they need a little bit more space. I mean, we've talked about, I, I've been on a few of these podcasts where we talk about comic book movies, mm-hmm. and it just feels like they're always overbloated, they're always a half hour too long, and yet at the same time, they don't have enough time to do everything that they set out to accomplish. And so it's this kind of silly paradox where it's, you know, you, you want them to go one way or the other. It's like, either get me out of there, you know, in, in two hours, or let's draw this thing out and build it out and, and really immerse ourselves in this world. And if you insist on giving us you know, 12 to 15 really core characters that are important and are supposed to be memorable, like maybe we need a little bit more time to get to know these people and at least develop their personalities. I'm with you. Makes sense. So that was a big thing. Um, the, the other thing, uh, my number two down had to do with, as much as I loved Apocalypse uh, as an antagonist, I thought by the end he, he was too powerful. And, and it's... It's the problem we keep seeing with these, these movies where we're going to end with this kind of CGI buffet, you know, and we're going to destroy a city. You know, the Transformers had to destroy Chicago and wherever else they, detroy, wherever else they destroyed. Um, you know, the, the Avengers, the most recent Avengers, they, they destroyed some bogus Eastern European city that they Sokovia, kind of invented. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. What, what was it again? Sokovia. Sokovia, believe, yeah. yeah. That doesn't exist, right? No, I don't think so. Yeah, I don't think so. Um, Apologies to Sokovians. Yeah, sorry guys. The poor, suffering people of Sokovia. Uh, So it's like, rather than really giving us real drama at the end, we have to have this intense, abstract mass death where we kill a million extras. And I just could not give a shit. Like, it's... And and so they they reach a point where 
it, it's so catastrophic uh, that what do we do with that? And, and, and we know how it's going to end. So, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not dramatic. And yeah. just when you're at the third act and you're supposed to be accelerating and picking up the stakes, you lose them because they just go a little bit too far. Sure. So I, I, And that's not to say that a film can't do that. There are plenty sure. of films that I think have been successful where there have been cataclysmic uh, odds sure. and cataclysmic stakes. We uh, want to feel like there's no way out, right? right that's right. the but we want to believe it. We want to right, 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 which is a different story. And I think that uh, they're struggling with here. Yeah, the third thing, and, I, and I'm I'm sorry to pile on because I know that this is a um, kind of a frequent thing with with Marvel movies. Uh, they have struggled a little bit with the female characters and having strong female characters, and you could tell they were trying a little harder this time around, um, but I think they failed yet again. And it was a lost opportunity. And so, you know, Mystique's character is really prominent, mm -hmm. and she's arguably the protagonist. When we get to structure, we will talk about this. Mm -hmm. It seems like by the time they got to the third act, they had written her into becoming the protagonist. Mm -hmm. She's the one leading the group. Mm -hmm. uh, but they give her no lines to work with. Like, frankly, I will take Rebecca Roman Stamus as Mystique because she, I mean, she had a better role. She was mysterious. Like, like you've got one of the best actresses in Hollywood, and you're giving her nothing to work with. And, and I, I think that's unfortunate. I, I thought that Sansa Jean Grey uh, could have, you know, we could have gotten a lot more out of that, but we didn't really get there. And so I, I saw the news today that Brian Singer has said that he wants to do a standalone movie for Mystique. And more power to him. But why couldn't you have made her more central in this movie? I mean, it's like, wh why couldn't you have, have, have made it a more compelling situation? And I don't know what it is with these Marvel movies, but they just cannot get past this. And maybe they should get a woman to direct one of these movies. I don't know, I like not to be controversial, but... I mean, one thing that is interesting is that uh, Apocalypse, in the comic books, was actually created by a, a woman who wrote for Marvel Comics uh, back in the 90s, Louise Simonson, created the character of Apocalypse. So, yeah, they probably should have consulted with her or any one of a number of uh, great female writers to bring this uh, into the modern world yeah. and not be stuck necessarily in the 80s. Yeah, and sadly they're deep 80s. Yeah, de definitely. I, uh, I do have to disagree with you about Mystique being more central. Uh, like... I mean, Jennifer Lawrence, I think, can do a good job when given good material to do mm -hmm. so. But Mystique to be the protagonist of an X-Men movie? That doesn't make any sense from the you know inner geek for me. That makes no sense at all. Like, she's an antagonist. She's not a protagonist. Sure. She's not an X-Men. Like, it, 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 it just drives me crazy, that, that little voice in my head. But I think it, that it was the desire to have a strong female character uh, at, at the middle of it that led them to write it this way. And, and it, I don't think it worked. And if you didn't have Storm or Jean Grey or other X-Men who were central to the actual story, I would say, all right, maybe we need to try to work something out. But the, the source material's there. Can we talk about Sansa Jean Grey for a minute? Of course. So she is, one of her uh, manifestations is the Phoenix, right? Yes. And that's kind of what happens at the end here? Yes. Doesn't the Phoenix die? Yes. Okay. <laughs> So what's up with Again, that? Spoiler alert. W would that have been would that have been too emotionally poignant to have her, you know, sacrifice herself for the sake of her other X-Men? I, I mean, again, I, that would have been completely a completely different story and and told in a completely different way. I think they're hopefully trying Knockwood to do it right this time because they tried to do it in X-Men 3, mm -hmm. uh, the last stand, and hopefully they'll move it more towards where 
uh, the story, the source material actually comes from, um, where she does sacrifice herself, and and uh, it gets more, much more cosmic. You're wondering where the stakes can go from here in terms of destroying a world. It goes much bigger than than where it is. Uh, Phoenix ends up being a, this cosmic being, um, kind of going where Marvel is going in their Guardians of the Galaxy world. I think Fox, with their X Men franchise, wants to go in the same place, uh, okay. playing a little more cosmically. So that should be again fun in terms of following that story, where X Men in space this time talking about this was X Men and the Mummies. Now we'll see X-Men in space, because that's actually where the source material came from. And the Phoenix story is this cosmic story. So it, it could be really great and exciting. And I'm glad that they did not go there in this particular movie and just hinted okay. at it. So I'm going to ask you a uh, comic book ignorant question. Um, given that, that you, you know Cyclops and Jean Grey are kind of, uh, at least in the comic book mm. world, the center of this, like what is their relationship? Like wh What is it that makes it the center of it? Because I, 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 right now they're kind of flirting, but they're not... We don't really get beyond flirting. Yeah, I, and again, it it is very soap opera-y in the idea that uh, Scott and Jean uh, have a love story that kind of starts way early. Uh, the first issue of X-Men in, I believe, 1963, is it? Um, is where Jean Grey first comes to the school. And again, in the comic books, the X-Men is not this university with hundreds of students. There are five students. That's it. It's this small story where these five students are trying to learn, and they are learning from each other and the professor, and they're evolving over time, and the whole school is evolving with them over time. And Gene and Scott are two of the first X-Men in total. They're not recruited you know, way after things are established. So again, the continuity is all crazy. But it's great to see them and their relationship starting here, at least in this movie, in a way. Um, and again, people could say it's rewritten for the different continuities. But it's exciting that it's that it's happening, and it's it's their love that um, really makes the X Men a family, um, and then uh, their relationship with Wolverine is always played out as this love triangle that they played with in the first couple of movies. But again, Scott is the leader of the X Men in in all comic book stories, in the cartoons and whatnot, where he's a, a master tactician, and seeing that is is really exciting. Storm ends up succeeding him in a fight that looks really familiar to the fight that we see the two of them having in this movie, which again is a little nod to the comic geeks out there that remember that from the comics. Um, and yet you, the comic geeks were not satisfied by actually seeing Chris be the leader of the X-Men. Like at no point is he the leader. No. No, no, not not in these movies. We, we, we really still have not gotten that just because nothing has been structured that way. I mean, I, like in terms of harnessing your powers and understanding your powers, I, I felt like Scott was, was basically, you know, Luke Skywalker with the blast shield, you know, down over his eyes. Like he's that he's that early on in his understanding of the whole thing. It's, you know, and, and it, you know, he manages to blast some things in the third act, but yeah. for the most part, it's completely uncultivated. Yeah, I, look, X-Men are supposed to be about... Uh, uh, teenagers, they're supposed to be about teenagers' bodies changing in ways that they don't understand and adapting to that and adapting to a world that hates and fears them. And those are core to the characters themselves. And sometimes these films get it and sometimes they, they, they don't necessarily hit the mark on it. Um, I'm hoping that as we go through kind of the structure, maybe we'll hit on some of the points where they uh, figure that out or maybe they miss the mark or miss the opportunities. Okay. Do we want to talk about the uh, 
the tent pole conventions and kind of how that fits sure. in the whole thing? Sure, that's something that we've been doing, um, and I'd love to at least uh, get through a little bit of this just to see how well this movie did compared to some of the other things that are, are out there these days. Um, the way that we've been talking about it on the script in terms of these superhero movies, which are becoming this genre of on their own, um, they are action movies, but there's also comedy and there's also expectations that come with the superhero genre in and of itself, for good or for bad. Mm -hmm. um, uh, one of them is this ratio of action set pieces to story. Uh, I mean, I think some superhero movies uh, folks look on as uh, not action-y enough. Um, <laughs> I look back on one that my wife and I are probably the only two, along with Ang Lee, who, who liked The Hulk, uh, the original Hulk film uh, that was... Who, who played The Hulk? Was that, was that the, the That Eric was Eric Bana, Bana yes. Oh, okay, okay. Again, very contemplative, and you had these moments of the Hulk kind of leaping through space and into the desert and looking at moss growing, and not really what would succeed as a superhero movie today, I think the... Philosopher the, Hulk. Exactly, Philosopher Hulk, yeah. Uh, so how do you think this, this did in terms of meeting expectations as a popcorn flick where there was well, action and excitement to carry through? So I, I, have to, I have to install an important caveat here, which yeah. is that I actually accidentally bought the 4D ticket. And and I didn't even know that this existed, but uh, I went to Union Square, uh, Regal Union Square, and that's just, they're not paying me for this, but they have seats that <laughs> <Sure>. move <laughs> and like air that like pops at you and like smells. And, and it was, I, I was not expecting this. I was kind of curious, like really, have we gotten to the point where a 3D movie cost me $30? <laughs> uh, but there, apparently there's a reason for this. So every time that something collapsed or something exploded, I was moving around in my chair. I felt like I was in Space Mountain. So, um, and there was a lot of explosions. There were a lot of collapsing. You know, so I, I like I was I, I was pretty excited the was whole it time. Fun? It was a lot of fun. Yeah. It's a good way to go see a movie. My uh, my daughter and I have seen the 4D experience at the Bronx Zoo. They do an Ice Age uh, okay. 4D experience that she loved. We loved. And it was a lot of fun. So I can only imagine with this, it was yeah, yeah it, was, it was it was so based on how much my chair was moving, it felt like it was a lot more action than drama. <laughs> okay. But you know, I, what did you think? Did you think the balance was struck? Yeah, I think so. I, I, I was I was engaged at the whole thing. I, I didn't feel like uh, anything was going on too long. Um, I thought uh, again because I didn't have those arcs to hang on to in terms of where the characters were going. I was kind of feeling like I was along for the ride wherever they were going. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like I was like okay, uh, being being pulled in specific directions and wondering what was happening. I was just like, all right, this is basically an amusement park ride for my eyes. And evidently, you got. The, the added package. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> uh, all right, so um, what about uh, for character development in an ensemble? Uh, um, we like to say that, you know, Joss Whedon can do it and did it pretty well in the first Avengers movie. Um, not necessarily as well in that second Avengers movie that we, you were just talking about in terms of Sofcovia, where things went all over the place and there wasn't that development. That people yeah, they, they had one scene in the second Avengers movie where they had Thor's hammer and they're like drinking and everybody is trying to pick up Thor's hammer. Yeah. And it was it was probably the best written scene in the whole movie, at, at least as far as getting the characters to interact. And obviously nobody but Thor can pick it up. Yeah. Uh, and and. Was there anything like that in this movie? I, I didn't I really so. see it. And again, I think part of that was there's just so many characters, and it was so diluted. Part of the X-Men is this idea that they need to relate to each other, and their relationships with each other help to reveal their evolution of character over time, just in terms of the way the stories have been told in the past. And I think that would have been a fantastic opportunity here in order to see them evolve through their own relationships with each other and how they uh, relate to their powers and their antagonism differently. Oh. Yeah, I think in part, that's why I was so disappointed by the Moira thing, because that felt like the most human moment in the whole thing, is when Charles is in her office, we know what he knows, we know that he's in love with her, 
And we know that what's his butt Beast uh, also knows and, and is being weird, uh, and she has no clue. Right. And and like that was a really nice moment. That's dramatic irony, right? Yeah. Like you know we know and they and then the character doesn't know. So they could have done a lot more with that. They could have played that out. That's why that arc not landing was more disappointing I think than, than a lot of the other stuff that they, they endeavored and didn't quite pull it off. It felt like a big setup as well. Like yeah. that could have played into the plot even. The fact that she didn't know all of this and that she forgot could have been pivotal to actually turning the story at some point. She could have gotten crosswise with him at some point. You know, yeah. there could have been tension. You know, yeah. there could have like instead of just like, oh I'm gonna give you your memories back and you know, let's go do what we're gonna do now. Yeah. So yeah. Missed opportunities, uh, yeah, definitely. Totally missed. Uh, action and comedy uh, set pieces. Uh, like I said, we, we talked about the action. Uh, what about the comedy? Uh, not did too I, much. Did you laugh? I laughed a little bit. Like, I laughed, again, I think the two characters that were set up as comic, uh, comic relief, comic elements, were Nightcrawler and Quicksilver. Mm-hmm. And Nightcrawler, again, I have this, like, little voice behind me uh, talking about Nightcrawler. Nightcrawler is, is funny. He's good-natured. He's a swashbuckler. And I think it was it was a decent portrayal of Nightcrawler, and he had some good moments. Quicksilver is a great cinematic character. I mean, he's really fun on screen, and he has some good parts. I love the, even the bit that's in the trailer uh, that we just watched. I thought that was that was really fun about his father and and uh, uh, Magneto and his mother and and whatnot. Um, the thing that again, little voice in my head, Quicksilver is the most stoic and unfunny character in comic book history. Like, oh, really? He has no sense of humor at all. Because that guy was trying to be a, a straight-up comic. I know, I know. But in the in the again, he he is just kind of humorless and is like the older brother to the uh, Scarlet Witch, as you may have seen in, in uh, uh, Avengers films. But it just it, it 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 provided the comic relief and i was really enjoying it in that scene that you mentioned where he rescues everybody it was really fun i don't know if there was necessarily enough of it throughout the whole thing there was enough levity it was still a little dark yeah uh anything else in here um originality uh of the superhero movie plot uh was this original i think we already mentioned this idea of so it was another bad guy taking over the world where was the originality i think you mentioned this notion of it being x-men do the mummy Mm-hmm. Um, which I think was kind of an original take in terms of cinematically. We haven't really seen too yeah. many superhero movies playing on genres, uh, which I thought that that they did pretty well. And everybody loves Egypt, so... You know. There you go, <laughs> um, I think that uh, it also, again, comes from the source material. that There was a lot of that. There was X-Men do Alien. So that was kind of one of the big uh, story arcs from the past, where there were these alien-like characters that the X-Men had to contend with. There was... They even met Dracula at some point. So, I mean, there was a lot of that kind of movie. They of met the, Dracula? They met Dracula. What yeah. happened? Uh, Storm became a vampire. <laughs> oh, why not? Uh, um, it's, uh, you know, beautifully, beautifully illustrated. Check it out. Um, yeah. But so, who knows where we may see it. Did actually, Dracula join the club? or is He, he did not. He just kind of ran around and did his own thing. He just ran around and did his own thing. I think they actually adapted it in the cartoon. So, you can actually uh, look that up okay. and, and see it somewhere. Something to look forward to. Yeah. Um, all right. So, um, we've talked about kind of the uh, the uh, tenets of the, the tentpole uh, movies. Uh but at the core, structure is still important. Structure, structure is still something that we should talk about. We should discuss the screenwriters and people who are interested in uh, uh, crafting stories. I think playing to the fanboys is great and, and a lot of fun. But at the core, um, you've got to have something that's going to draw your audience along and um, keep um, folks who may not be as well-versed in the lore interested in, and uh, following along the story. Sure. So, uh, you want to start taking us through the structure? Yeah, and I, I, I want to start by posing a question. Sure. Uh, and and it's I think it's one of the challenges when you have this many people on screen, mm. uh, and it's it's a 
anytime you want to have a conversation about structure, you need to know who's at the center of it, right? And who the protagonist is. And I struggled with who the protagonist was in this movie. Uh, And and maybe it's fine to have a kind of protagonist baton, as we've talked about in these podcasts before, where you kind of hand off from person to person. Mm -hmm. But early on, I mean, it really felt like we were seeing things through the eyes of Cyclops and maybe to a lesser extent seeing them through the eyes of Nightcrawler. They're kind of the new kids who are being brought into the school of the gifted, right? And then by the third act, the person who's really moving the story is Mystique slash Raven. And so, like, in your opinion, who was the middle of the story? Or was there one? Maybe that's a trick question. I, 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 would, I would have to say that Mystique is the one who, if anything, had that, that moment of transformation, that moment of making a decision, that moment of going from being kind of this just renegade loner who decided to join up and, and lead, you know, take that leadership position. So, yeah, I mean, she seems to be that, that protagonist character that steps up. And then I also think that Xavier is kind of the center of, of it all, but he's not the one that actually takes that action at the end. Uh, it's, it's Jean who takes the action as part of it, so it seems a lot muddier. Yeah. Um, I mean, who actually succeeds in the end? Who actually triumphs in the end? They only do as a team, I guess. Right. So I, I guess in, in some senses it's hard to pin it, a pin a certain A story mm. to it because we don't know who kind of the, the, the core is. But we can probably agree that the A story is Beat Apocalypse, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Did you have a sense of what the B story was? Like, what's the second thread? I mean, I felt like there were about 15 second threads. Yeah. <laughs> um, I would say probably... I think they were trying to make it Magneto's story. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, and again, I'll go back to the source material just because that's what I'm here for. Uh, the idea that uh, in the original story of Apocalypse, when he first comes on the scene, uh, he takes on four horsemen of the Apocalypse. Three of them are kind of inconsequential. We don't really even know who they are. They're kind of just folks that he makes into uh, pestilence and, and disease and... Uh, I forget what the other one was. And then he takes an X-Man and turns that X-Man into one of his horsemen. And in the original source material, that's Angel, who is already an X-Man. He's one of the original X-Men. He's not just some new kid. He is part of the team. And so that's the X-Men's specific connection to Apocalypse. So what they did was they threw Angel in there because they had to in terms of telling this story. But he didn't play the role that he played in the original source material. Magneto did. Magneto was the one who was turned into a tool of evil even though in the past he had already been kind of evil you so switch sides so, m- so many times i know I'm, just, I'm looking around the corner it's like is e mckellen coming is yeah, he, is yeah. He, you know which side is he on yeah, now, yeah for the record the four horsemen conquest war ah okay famine and death there you go and 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 they they clearly they had cleaner roles when we had the the intro and it was in egypt uh, i didn't really know where the the four mutants who get turned fit in that and I, I puzzled over it for a minute and then just decided it wasn't worth really yeah, thinking I about. I don't know either. I don't know either. But uh, but again, I think that, that pr- it seemed to me that Magneto was that B story. You had this scene with his family uh, being killed and, and uh, his uh, attempts at being good. I mean, he had that, that heart. And again, you've got the A story and the B story kind of coming together in the end and that's where where we were in that end where his story did turn. I don't understand why they didn't play Quicksilver's part in it. Mm-hmm. Um, oh yeah, it's just sitting there, just waiting for you. Like, what are you waiting for? You waiting for the next, you know, series of three movies? Yeah. 
Would yeah. you say that that would be a good contender for B story? Yeah, I, I think it's a good one. I mean, I, it felt like one of the more emotionally poignant moments was seeing Magneto's family killed, and 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 uh, like with so many of these, the the setups were good, and then what we did with it, you know, w- once we get to the point where he's churning up the earth and you know floating in the air and and you know being all Zeus like, like all right, okay, well, you know, you're gonna you're gonna go get on with your bad self. Absolutely, so. absolutely. So as far as theme goes, I mean, we talk about how sometimes in a lot of movies, the theme is is clearly stated by a character early on. And in the case of this movie, I felt the theme was stated fairly late. And I'm hoping that you will agree with me on this, but it seems like with all these sorts of movies, the the theme is, you know, we're stronger together than individually, right? I mean, that's kind of... That's kind of the X-Men, right? It's a it team. Is, it is very much the X-Men. It is very much the X-Men. So you see, you think that that uh, is personified by Mystique's journey? It, it is personified by Mystique's journey, and then Xavier says it at the end. He says, you will never win. He says this to Apocalypse. You will never win because you are alone, and I am not. I mean, it's pretty on the nose. Yeah, That's absolutely. the thing. Well, there's also the dynamic moment where you see that when all of them turn their energy powers to apocalypse or one of them could not get through but when they all then turned attention and worked together that's yeah. that's when it when it comes together and, and i'm not working chronologically here but i i, I feel like i can we'll, we'll jump to that like they you could see the seeds of all of those turns right you know so you know that storm is is like mystique is her hero so the idea that Mystique, you know, I, I think the, the key moment, kind of the dark, dark night of the soul, is when Apocalypse has Mystique, he's captured her. He, she's basically said, I'm going to go do this. Like, we have to do this. She's brought Quicksilver along. He's kind of a, a meek companion because he's not going to face up to his dad. And, and so, you know, she attacks uh, Apocalypse. Like, you know, he doesn't know it's her. And, and then he, he grabs her. And it's, it's him grabbing her that turns Storm. Uh, it also kind of turns... Magneto in a certain regard, right? Yeah. Uh, it kind of brings, you know, the, one of the dynamics we talk about in screenwriting is friends become enemies and enemies become friends. It's That's how you up the tension, by having people change sides. And so everybody changes sides there at the very end when when Mystique is, is held up, and, and that's what kind of brings them all around. So, I, like, I felt like they earned that structurally. I don't know that they earned it from a character standpoint, yeah, but as far so. as like I could see the seeds at the beginning, and I could see you know the the plants coming out of the ground at the end, and and that worked, uh, and and I'm impressed with them doing that with this many people in the mix, uh, but you know there's that. Absolutely, absolutely. All right, what uh, what's next? So as far as like other structural stuff, uh, the the catalyst. Uh, it seems like the catalyst really has to be Apocalypse being brought back to life, right? Yes. He's being regenerated. I mean, this is going to be the thing that they're going to have to fight against. So we're in agreement about that. And Moira playing that role in it again, I thought was was really a nice touch. Yeah, and it was it was kind of a nice moment as far as bringing a few different things together because you may remember that Sansa Jean Stark is having like a telekinetic nightmare at that mm-hmm. moment, yep. and and so that brings her into this. She's felt this uh, disruption in the force, shall we mm-hmm. say. Uh, there's also uh, it, it revives the kind of Xavier and Moira romance, which wasn't paid off in the long term, but it was introduced nicely. I mean, the first act was great. Yeah, I, you know that's I, I know that's damning with faint praise, but <laughs> I felt really great about the first act. Uh, it seems like the break into two. I, I mean, it, it's it's a little tricky because we don't have a, a, a clear sense of who the protagonist is and which door they're walking through. But it felt like Cyclops and Nightcrawler kind of arriving at the school. 
It's oh. it, it's like I mean, I, did you did you see another moment that felt like kind I of a the, decisive act? I thought the destruction of the school was the break too. Was that a little late? Um, I thought the destruction of the school was kind of out of nowhere, and having Havoc be the one that ended up destroying it just because he missed shooting the bad guy was a little weird. Oops. Yeah, oops. But it did. It just kind of changed up the stakes of the whole story where. The, the, uh, the course of their lives really was diverted at that point. Mm-hmm. And now we were on a, a little bit of a different mission, and, and they were in, in it. They, they couldn't just go about their everyday lives. They, they really had to, to take up the reins. They came back from the mall, their trip out to the mall, and yeah. now they really couldn't play around anymore, and they had to really step up. Went to the mall in my thriller jacket, and I totally. came back, and my school had been blown up. Totally, totally. I hate it when that happens. Yeah. So them, them stepping up and then going off to the, uh, the, the Weapon X facility, I don't know what they called it, the Lake Alkali, I think it was, where Stryker's team was experimenting, which, again, was out of nowhere. Did you know it was Stryker from the outset? I did. Okay. I did. I, I was did. like, who's this guy? And then I'm like, oh, yeah, this is the guy that captured Wolverine. Yeah. He, you know? he Again, he was in Days of Future Past. The young Stryker was in Days of Future Past. I think he might have been in First Class originally. So he's been a character here. And again, he, he's the younger version of the character that was in the original series when we saw the origins of Wolverine. And so they've, they've kind of played that through. Again, it has no. I don't know what it was doing in this story. It was kind of thrown in there, but it, it made for some fun, some fun excitement, and I guess uh, played into the plot of giving them a way to get where they needed to go uh, along the the way after the Blackbird was destroyed. Mm-hmm. That that jet that you were talking about being yeah. so iconic and awesome, which was the X Men's plane in the comic books. Like that's what they flew okay. around in. That was their thing. So to have this. My kind ignorance of, is clearly on display. Here. No, no, no. That, but that's cool. That it was something that that was iconic in the '80s for its own reasons, and and it represented their pinnacle of, of time and now they've got this something new and they got the flight suits so they could have the cool action outfits like it just kind of gave them the the tools that they needed along the way it was kind of like the heroes being equipped for their their final big battle which yeah. again is is classic for for mythologies as well yeah the reason i had the uh, the, the the young folks arriving at the school is the break into two is because it felt like the fun and games happen after they arrived you know cyclops is trying to harness his powers he sees that that Jean Grey. Oh, we're talking about breaking two. I was thinking midpoint. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Mid- yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the midpoint is definitely when Apocalypse infiltrates uh, Charles Xavier's mind, gotcha. and it's yeah. like, and 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 that also lends itself to maybe pointing us to a B story, which would maybe be something about Charles, uh, because oftentimes what happens at the midpoint is that the A story and the B story intersect, yeah. right? And so the, the the idea that our our antagonist, who is at the core of the A story has now discovered Charles and discovered his abilities and discovered his ability to link with anybody yeah. in the world is something that really raises the stakes in a significant way. One of the other things that often happens at the midpoint is it's the first time that the antagonist and the protagonist actually see themselves face to face or they, they meet eye to eye yeah. and that's there's that moment for you uh, yeah. right there. Alright, so that makes sense. Gotcha. Okay, break into two. Kids come to the school. That makes perfect sense. Yeah, yeah, I hear. So you. the the uh, you know kind of all is lost moment. You know when when we're we're deeper into the second act and and things are looking pretty bad. Uh, I mean it, it's and it's hard in a two and a half hour sprawling movie. But you know so you know Magneto is juiced. He's he's met Apocalypse. He's now you know he can move the Earth. You know oh that was your your tricks were already good before and now you can you know you're you're veritable construction crew he's um, reaching deeper this time yeah so. he's he's <laughs> destroying stuff um apocalypse has been cannibalizing xavier's powers he's got him held captive he's using him to send messages um and and, and everything is looking pretty bad and and then mystique's going to go on this apparent kind of suicide mission because it's like I, i'm going to fight this guy you know even if no one else is and she's kind of rising up as the leader of these people 
uh, of the X-Men, even though, as you say, that's totally preposterous from a, <laughs> you know, kind of basic tech standpoint. Um, but all that's kind of building up to the final show, uh, showdown. And, and you've got a bunch of, uh, you know, I talked about dyads earlier, but you've got a bunch of things that are kind of coming to a head in the third act. We've got Nightcrawler versus Angel, and they've already fought once. Uh, but now they're fighting again, and Nightcrawler has his training, and, and Angel has been, you know, he, he's he's on performance-enhancing drugs because he's been hanging out with Apocalypse. <laughs> Say the least. Uh, and, and we've got Magneto versus Mystique, although they kind of tiptoe up to that and then don't quite do it. No, not really. Um, you could have had a moment, you know, like, hey, I'm your son. How does he not know, by the way? How how does Magneto <laughs> not know that Quicksilver's his son? I don't son? know. Makes no I mean, sense. <laughs> like, I understand the other way around, but, you know, whatever. Uh, and then you've got the most meaningless battle... I think of the entire third act, you've got Beast, who I, I had to look up his name. I'm like, oh, yeah, the blue guy. Yeah. Like, what's his story? Uh, and Psylocke, uh, who I was like, is, is like, who, who is, oh, it's Olivia Munn. Okay, I got it. Um, and so that's all coming. And then, and then Raven Mystique, you know, getting kind of, kind of choked, and, and, and here we go. We're going we're gonna to get into the final. Uh, and that's what's going to bring Storm and Magneto yeah. and everybody around to go after Apocalypse. It, you know, it's, it's just, again, it's so funny because you wonder how much, and I think the answer is a lot, how much Hollywood has the in, impact on all of this and impact on the storytelling and how the story ends up getting chained. Because what if it wasn't um, uh, 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 Mystique, um, I'm completely blanking, um, Mystique's character, actor, um, Oh, Jennifer Lawrence? Yes. What if it wasn't Jennifer Lawrence? Wasn't, what if Jennifer Lawrence wasn't this big star? Would that have been Cyclops? Would that have been Scott? And having taken this journey of this kid who didn't know what he was doing, trying to figure out his powers, and then his real power, because Scott's real power is his leadership ability in, in you know, the, the character as he's uh, been built, for Scott to suddenly step up at that point and take all of these X-Men who are working separately to work together as a team and come up with a strategic plan that would actually have it all coordinate sounds much more on point with the theme of what was happening and would have made a lot more sense but again that's not hollywood in terms of playing up the biggest stars to have the central position are you suggesting that casting may have influenced the plot structure believe it or not yeah, that's kind of that. where i'm going imagine that imagine yeah. did that. i already ask the question of why jennifer lawrence is in these movies and doesn't <laughs> she have something better to do <laughs> I, th I think i already raised that but it just it felt like w wasted talent so anyway they come together, they pool together, they manage, despite long odds, to beat the bad guy, and then we're left with the team is assembled. There right? you go. And that's yeah. kind of the ending. And I got to ask you this question because you're a comic book guy. Why do we keep ending these movies this way? Why do we end with, I mean, because the Avengers, the second Avengers, it was the same way. It's like, here's the new team of Avengers, and aren't you happy that this is where we left off? And I'm like, I don't feel sentimental about these characters. I couldn't care. You know, it could be, you know, it could be the original Beatles for all I care. Like it, it, it would be the it would be the same thing. It's just it doesn't it doesn't add up to. That's a conclusion. Absolutely. It, it's like promise of future sequels. Absolutely. And look, I, I'm going to go back. We keep going back to Game of Thrones, just because it is uh, a masterwork of our time in terms of storytelling and in terms of emotional storytelling. I mean, it, it rips our guts out all the time. Uh, we don't have to even go through any spoils for, spoilers for Game of Thrones, but it's this idea where characters will die and you care about those characters dying, or characters are reunited and you care about those characters being reunited because you've seen them go on a journey and you've gone on that journey with them. And it's something that it has in common with comic books because in the comic book storytelling, these stories took place over months of time. You know, you got 22 pages per month. That's it. 
22 pages of story per month over years of storytelling and years of stories developing and relationships developing so that when you did have those moments of, of uh, the splash pages of the, the, the characters getting together and teams forming, it was emotionally satisfying. Mm -hmm. But in a film where you try to pack it all in, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like it works, especially when there's so much going on and so many characters uh, to try to contend with. Um, so I, again, I don't necessarily feel, especially in this movie, that that was earned. So speaking of too many characters, uh, we had what I thought was one of the more fun scenes of this movie, which was the three minutes that Wolverine was in it. <laughs> and, and, you know, it, it felt like it was a little earned in the sense that we understand who Stryker is and we understand that he's the person who, who first, you know, kind of captured Wolverine and, and, and kind of turned him into what he is. And so this kind of breakout scene is this flashback to other movies or fast forward to other movies or whatever I don't really know but uh, you know and, and he's it's not just it's not just the Hugh Jackman Wolverine as we know him he's strapped into some crazy like I'm gonna make you insane like helmet thing that is uh, is pretty fun and he goes on a massive rampage like he is arguably the most evil person in this entire movie like you know he's like Dexter style like blood spatter I mean it is intense uh, and and then and then he's gone. Absolutely. And again, they're getting back and they're making this attempt to get back to the core of who these characters are. The core of Wolverine was never the cool guy. Well, I mean, he was the cool guy, but it's his, his struggle between man and animal. That's the core struggle of Wolverine. And it's the core struggle that was missing even from the last Wolverine movie, The Wolverine, which was based on a story where it was all about him struggling with that berserker animal nature that's a part of him that we really have not seen very much of within these movies. Now we see it. Now we really see it. And that's all from uh, a classic Wolverine story called Weapon X, where we go back to, to see his backstory, where he's in that gear and they're trying to make him into a weapon. They give him the, the, the claws, the metal skeleton and whatnot, and he goes berserk and they tap into that berserker rage as a part of who he is and what really makes him a weapon. He's the best there is that what he does, and what he does isn't very nice. That's his, his, his phrase. And yeah, he's not a good guy. He's not a bad guy. He has, uh, uh, he's got these great lines when uh, new members have been added to the X-Men that have formerly been villains and have been converted in. And he, he says, well, if this outfit's going to let me in, then they certainly would let them in. And I mean, that's really core to what he's all about. So there's an attempt to get to that. It's just out of nowhere. That's that's my confusion here. Yeah. He's kind of the ultimate outsider, right? Yeah. I mean, he's probably a Trump supporter. <laughs> so, like, I, I, I guess, you know, as, as you're looking at all this, I mean, where, what's your takeaway? Like, where are we at with this franchise? You know, we've had, we've had two installments of three movies. Where are we now? I, uh, I think that, uh, as I said, they have set some seeds in motion to try to um, capitalize on some of the classic stories and some of this classic storytelling. I think Brian Singer is trying to right some of the wrongs of his predecessors uh, in terms of storytelling with the resets that again, are true to some of the time travel that's happened in the X-Men movies. We talk sometimes about uh, double mumbo-jumbo being something that you're supposed to avoid in screenwriting, but in the world of comic books, you've got the X-Men meeting Dracula or going out into space, and there's a lot of double mumbo-jumbo happening, um, but they try to contain it as best they can. Um, I think here they took those two elements of superheroes and the story of you know the ancient Egyptian gods and whatnot and mixed it all together in a semi-successful way. 
But where it can go now, I hope that they're going to do good by telling the Phoenix Saga in a way that, that's really going to be uh, interesting and heartfelt. Um, I'm hoping that Jennifer Lawrence doesn't necessarily need to capitalize and overbear the next set of storytelling and that Scott and Jean can really come into their own a little bit more and uh, maybe take us on into uh, a, a new sequel, a, a new trilogy that uh, uh, allows for some really solid storytelling as well. Right. I, hope, I, I hope you're right. You as, know, as a I, non-comic book guy, do you have any hopes? I, you know, it would be nice if they killed a few of these people off. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm tired of a few of them. Um, most of them, actually. <laughs> okay. So, you know, I, but, you know, that's, again, that's kind of cynical. So, um, but, no, I'm, I, I think I'm good. I'm not ready for another three movies. Okay. But, you know, uh, maybe I won't live enough, long enough to see all those. All right. so. Well, we'll see where uh, the next uh, film in the X-Men franchise is going to be the Wolverine 3, the third Wolverine story. And that's Hugh Jackman's last, right? That is supposedly Hugh Jackman's last. Evidently, it takes place in a future where it uh, uh, takes um, its cues, uh, rumored to take cues from the old man Logan story. So it's like in a future where he's the only one who survived, although Patrick Stewart is supposedly in it as well. So we'll see. We'll see if there's any repercussions from this movie. I know, sounds confusing. Is this there's like one. Wolverine does I Am Legend? Kind of, maybe, yeah, a little you can bit. You bring Dracula future. back in. Yeah, sure, yeah. absolutely. We'll see what mumbo-jumbo they add into that that time. Um, but we'll see. We'll see where that goes. Um, I don't think they've announced any particular sequel to um, X-Men Apocalypse, but anything's possible. All right, so should we see if we got any questions from the audience? <laughs> any questions? Or from, or our, from our studio our... audience? <laughs> we covered everything. <laughs> Anything? Um, I guess just uh, a bit of like the terminology uh, used. You said dyads. Um, can you explain that? You said, uh, I think you said dyads? Dyads, yeah, yeah, dyads. I, I think that's actually a term from the 90s. You know, I know this movie was more about the 80s, but, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's just like, you know, one-on-one -on -one kind of situations, people interacting, that sort of thing. Yeah. The question was, what are dyads, uh, in addition to being an outdated word that dates me yeah well but i think it's also I, that's a shakespearean construct as well and yeah. shakespeare worked that way all the time so uh just in terms of storytelling uh different balances and seeing how things fall out of whack nice. um so what would you guys rate the movie like out of 10 <laughs> alec you could go first <laughs> just uh, the question was how do we rate this movie one to ten uh i don't know somewhere around like a six or seven maybe um like i said i enjoyed it i enjoyed just the, the spectacle of it, but from a screenwriting and structural and emotional way, I don't think it, it did what it could have done. And uh, that little voice in the back of my head just nagged me that so much that wasn't right um, just kept bugging me. What, what was, were there any particular things that really annoyed you other than just Scott and Gene not being in the middle of this? Like what, what, what were the most egregious things from a fanboy perspective? Uh, again, it, it's, it's stuff that just from the movie, um, structure wouldn't even allow for it just because the x-men are this this small group as i mentioned before that evolved um very very interpersonally over time and they keep trying to make it into this army that's hard to keep track of and it just it's just as frustrating throughout yeah. the whole way um like i said i really hope we get the opportunity to see more of some of these characters like i said storm is a great example of that like i want to see her come of her own i want something that focuses a little bit more on her and i'm afraid she's just not going to get that attention because there's going to be just too much else going on and she's yeah. a great character yeah not to get all actuarial about it but i would probably rank it at like maybe a 4.3 um maybe 4.4 4, but no higher than that's, that that's pretty actuarial yeah <laughs> 
<laughs> I can tell you, I, I, I liked it better than First Class, but not as much as uh, Days of Future Past. What's the greatest X-Men movie that's been made? I think they did a really good job with uh, Days of Future Past. Um, I, I've just been watching it recently again. And Days of Future Past, the original source material, actually Mystique was the antagonist in that. So that, that actually did work in terms of the adaptation of it all. And I loved the, the interplay. The action was great, the representation of the characters. So that was a lot of fun. Um, and uh, the original, though, kind of, holds a soft spot in my heart just again just seeing it come to the screen uh, right from the get-go uh, was really exciting um, I don't know that you necessarily would have any kind of a favorite like that not being the big fan of it all but that's the only one I can keep track from the others the first one yeah <laughs> okay. so you know I, I, I felt the most clarity with that first one by default yeah by exactly. default alright great uh, any last thoughts for us I think I'm good. All right. Well, um, I want to thank Jeremy tonight for joining uh, me uh, on stage here. We, again, miss uh, David and hope uh, he'll be joining us, I'm sure, on the next edition of The Script. Uh, I want to thank our Patreon subscribers out there. And you can follow The Script uh, Facebook page by searching for NYC Screenwriters Collective. You can follow us on Twitter at ScriptFeed, and you can support The Script Podcast at patreon.com slash the script. Uh, I also want to mention the producers of The Script are Jordan Rosengarten and David Negrin. And thank you all for tuning in. See you next time, Alec. Take care, Jeremy.